This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. It's been closed for eight weeks, but the Tenemai Road is back open this afternoon, which is a big relief for many in that region, including the Newmont Gold Mine. Without the road access, we've been using our flights to fly food in, so bringing in three or four tonne of food, which gets us by day to day. But what this will allow us to do now is to really increase our, our food stocks on site up to two to four weeks. Will the Tenamai remain open, though? A wet weekend ahead, it would seem. We will speak to the Weather Bureau for the latest at about five past one. Also today, some of Australia's biggest cattle companies are joining forces to try and reopen an ag college in outback Queensland. We are saying that we are prepared to put our money where our mouth is and seek to secure this asset because it's a crying shame to see something sit there and do nothing. These stories and plenty more coming up on today's Country Hour. Let's get into it. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. First up today, let's talk about buffalo. Now, if you go and shoot some feral buffalo in the Northern Territory this afternoon, should you be rewarded with valuable carbon credits. Researchers at Charles Darwin University have been looking at the potential of this. Here's what CDU's Hugh Davies told us earlier in the month. Uh, So buffalo are ruminant animals, which means that they emit large amounts of methane through their digestion. And methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. And um, currently feral buffalo numbers are increasing across northern Australia, meaning their emissions are too. So the whole idea of our research was that if we can keep their numbers under control, we can avoid greenhouse gas emissions, potentially generating carbon credits, um, which um, might then be able to be sold and make money. So there you go. Hugh Davies from Charles Darwin University. He says the early work suggests a buffalo emits 78 kilos of methane each year, which is the equivalent of about two tonnes of CO2. So the theory is removing a buffalo from the environment should be worth two carbon credits. Is this a good idea for reducing the population of feral buffalo in the Northern Territory? We all know how much damage they do to the environment. Is this the win-win scenario? You might have your own thoughts here. 0487 1057 is our text. On the Country Hour today, let's find out what the buffalo industry makes of all of this. I sat down with Tom Dawkins from the NT Buffalo Industry Council who says this research by CDU caught his industry by surprise. We were interested to see um, CDU talking about uh, buffalo and, and things that impact their industry. We're sort of, we welcome discussions like that. And to be frank, um, and the first we're reading about it is in the news and that sort of thing. That's um, so be it. But there's been some good discussions. I've spoken to Brett and to Hugh um, in the last week. These are the researchers at CDU. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And um, they've got some, you know, some very interesting um, work that they've presented by their own admission. It's very narrow. It's making a, a large number of assumptions and... We, we've looked at this um, and decided to take it as, a, as an opportunity for further dialogue. Um, okay, so just to be clear, in the research, no one ever came to the buffalo industry for some insight or thoughts? That's correct. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so I think we'd, we'd always love to see more opportunities to engage with CDU and if this is um, uh, uh, you know, the opportunity that... Um, provides that, then so be it. But um, we probably could have, um, you know, pr- given some other um, estimations on um, the the sort of me- methane um, and carbon equivalent calculations that you know form the basis of what's assumed in this study. And then, um, you know, there's there's some modelling that's been done on cattle, which, which sometimes gets, in, you know, intensive settings, which then sort of 
ends up being put into an NT pasture right. setting. Right, as in a, a, an animal in a feedlot would have some different outcomes to an animal in the in the rangelands. Yeah, it's understood. It's you know, so when we're sort of building a lot of assumptions. So, so are, you, are you arguing that perhaps a buffalo is not emitting seventy eight kilos of methane every year? It would be hard to to you know to really know that those you know those figures are solid. And so okay. when you go to when you end up going to market to sell something like a carbon credit. Um, you'd, you'd probably want to have firmer figures than that, not um, not looking at trials that might have taken place overseas with a different animal and in different feeding scenarios. We're, we're pretty unique um, where we are, um, and we're unique throughout different times of the year too. Mm. Well, you mentioned the word opportunity. Can we talk about that? In this research, what do you see? Oh, if I was... Um, if I was uh, in charge of getting um, getting the message out about this particular study, it probably wouldn't have been talking about um, culling wild bovine uh, for carbon credits so much. Um, it, it would have been talking about this initial work that's looking at the potential carbon credit dividend that comes from removing an animal um, from a landscape where it's um, um, causing an environmental risk. So the, the language around this seems to be very narrow and specific around culling. Um, the conversations I've had in the last week and, and the assumptions we make uh, about contracts mustering and managed removal of feral bovine across the top end is that it's actually better than a shoot to waste, not, ju- not just because you're um, getting the dividend of um, an animal going into a supply chain, but you, you, you are actually removing that animal from the landscape, whereas you know, shoot to waste just uh, uh, allows that animal, the, the carcass, to decompose. It then emits methane in the process, and it probably um, just creates uh, um, a, a, you know, a, a nice feed for some um, other animals, pigs or whatever they yeah. might be, that we don't particularly want there either. In all of this is potentially a, an opportunity for your sector, this idea of being able to muster up buffalo, sell them to the abattoir or to live export, and along the way earn a carbon credit on top of that. And that's what we're interested in um, investigating. The carbon market's still got a lot of maturing to do. Um, there's a lot of questions about how open to manipulation it can be. You know, I watched Four Corners on Monday night and saw what was happening in New Guinea. And the the discussion about carbon credits is one thing, and it sounds like it's an interesting opportunity for pastoralists and for all sorts of land management models. But the question I think we all want to come back down to is this good for the environment? Is it good for the landscape we're talking about? Or is it built on, um, you know, fidgety market structures and, and maybe it, it allows a company a long way away to, to claim some sort of environmental credential. <laughs> if it's not good for us here locally, sorry, I'm parochial. I, I'm not that interested in it. Do you think a big company would want to buy a carbon credit that's been created by gunning down a buffalo in Arnhem Land? Whether it's um, culling a buffalo or wild cattle or brumbies or even kangaroos, we see, um, there are significant reputational um, questions and risks that go with that, which is something I think that the Territory should contemplate too in, in a broader way. Um, mm. We can't um, probably take a study like this, which is extremely narrow, um, and think it's um, a, a platform to, to, to build economic models. Let's use this and probably do the, the remaining sort of nine-tenths of, of the factors we need to consider. Okay, so... As mentioned, this study is is very much early days. It's flagged an interesting idea that's generating discussion. But what's your understanding on the pathway from here for it to actually become a a methodology and and actually be real life? A lot more work would need to be done, I dare say, and a lot more confidence in the carbon market. Um, Some of the traditional owners, you know, range of groups I speak to at the moment just say that even at a price level, you know, the market volatility, it's um, a scary thing to think that um, carbon is is the only sort of um, market solution to managing wild animals. Uh, And it's like any agricultural industry, 
Uh, we like a range of market options and sometimes they complement each other. I can't see at the moment, um, honestly, in a world where uh, we do need to be uh, monitoring animals for diseases and um, we've got protein shortages and, and demand for Australian red meat. I can't see a scenario, honestly, where you know the, the silver bullet solution um, to buffalo management in the top end is is culling. It's it's you know it it just doesn't tick enough boxes. And even if the carbon price is there, I think we'd still have this um, other mar- these other market forces driving um, the you know dri- driving the management, the sustainable management. Um, which you know creates dividends, it, it creates skills, it's jobs, it opens roads up in into remote places, and um, shooting you know, shooting animals from a helicopter doesn't do that. Just before I let you go, I've got here 350 head of buffalo exported in January from Darwin. Who who managed to sneak a few out in January? Well, that reflects what we're um, increasingly doing, and that's. Um, uh, people involved in the industry who know that there's an incentive to put um, uh, a buffalo behind wire from from last season's catch, and um, and you know make sure that we've got a 12 month a year uh, supply, especially for that customers in Indonesia and and our other customers in places like Malaysia. So, you know, we we like to say there's a 30 million dollar industry at the moment. We're having conversations right now about the rum jungle abattoir opening um, quite a bit earlier than it has um, in in the last few years. So we'd like to think that uh, when there's a conversation being had about generating economic dividends from managing wild animals, that we can look at what we're already doing. And, um, you know, in, in the case of culling for carbon, I, I do sort of think in, uh, in a lot of scenarios, it's probably like swallowing the spider to catch the fly you know it it's not a real solution so let's sit down at a round table and and look at um, um, the options that, that consider the interests of all stakeholders thanks for your time today thank you matt yeah thanks to tom dawkins who is from the nt buffalo industry council culling buffalo to earn carbon credits is it the future for buffalo management in the northern territory what do you make of this on the tech zero four eight seven double nine one zero five seven, Paul in Humpty Doo says, "I thought it was a man-made climate change catastrophe that was our problem. So let's go and kill some buffaloes." Unreal, says Paul. The Mimmel Land Management Aboriginal Corporation. It's got a long history when it comes to mustering up feral buffalo. Based at Bullman in central Arnhem Land, this corporation is involved in selling a few thousand buffalo every year when all goes to plan. So would it consider culling buffalo if it meant earning carbon credits? Max Rowley spoke to the Chief Executive, Dominic Nichols, and asked for his thoughts on this research. Oh, we're very interested in in that research. It's a space that we've been involved in and other Arnhem Land groups have had conversations around this opportunity for a number of years. We we would have to very seriously consider um, how it how we applied it, as I say, it's all relative to the price and income and opportunity. But if it was a a better opportunity than um, the benefits of of mustering and associated costs, then yeah, we obviously would look at it as a more effective management and income tool for the area. But that would ultimately come back to what landowners of that area want as well. So they would be weighing up those various opportunities. Do you have any culling programs for feral buffalo? Uh, no, Mimo hasn't and doesn't currently run any culling programs. Um, we have a mustering operation, so as part of our management activities, we, we support uh, a commercial harvest. You know, that sort of takes anywhere from two and a half to 4,000 animals out of the system each year, and that also returns a significant income to the, the people in this area. And so in terms of the potential for carbon credits in this space, would that help the work that you do? Yeah, well, one of the big kind of balances is the value of an animal from a commercial perspective being weighed up against the cost of the impacts of that animal and the cost of removing that animal from the landscape, however that's done. So 
anything that enables that needs to cover its costs. So you know, the, the carbon price um, on removing animals would just be another opportunity for our landowners to realise some income, but also contribute to the improvement of the land generally, so it can be used for other things as well. Uh, I, I probably should sort of add that you know, Mimo's intention is to still keep working in the areas which are delivering um, in, our, in our economic uh, mustering and harvesting. You know, that is a really important industry for our sector. It's one that the NT values. And um, as I say, while we will explore and look at any great options that sit on the table, um, we're also going to keep doing what is working. Right, which is mustering buffalo at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Are there any questions that you still have around how this would work or, or about the research itself? Oh, look, there's still um, some a lot of details to be explored around the method itself, and we're uh, working with other partner groups on that as well. Um, you know, next week, we've got the Business Indigenous Carbon Industry Network's Savannah Fire Forum, which is looking at all of the various opportunities around you know, carbon markets and carbon opportunities and you know, feral animals and um, in, you know, impacts on biodiversity are sort of right up in amongst those conversations as well as looking at a number of other opportunities. That's Dominic Nichols, who's the Chief Executive of Mimal Land Management. Communities across Arnhem Land watching the research with interest. Culling buffalo to earn carbon credits. What are your thoughts? Zero four eight seven double nine one oh five seven or maybe you agree with the NT Buffalo Industry Council that perhaps researchers should change the language up a bit and perhaps just focus more on mustering and removing buffalo from the environment and reward that with carbon credits than just getting the guns out. On our text line, Russell says, Matt, just heard the gentleman speak about buffalo in the top end, methane gas, and spoke about bovines across the top end. What if those bovines had guns, says Russell? I can feel a song coming on. Maybe, Russell. Maybe if we have time. <laughs> this week on Landline, Australia's growing love of cherries. I find it very hard to go past a ripe cherry on a tree. <laughs> Just put it that way. I come out going, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that many cherries. And teaching kids rural skills early at cattle camp. You've got to have um, patience, discipline, all that stuff. That's Landline Sunday, 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And the market report. How good is the market report? It is 10 to 1. You are tuned into the Country Hour. The size of the MacArthur River Mines environmental bond is being challenged in the Northern Territory Supreme Court this week. Traditional owners and environmentalists have argued the $400 million deposit is not enough and could leave taxpayers paying the bill if there's any environmental damage out there. Jesse Thompson was in the courtroom yesterday. Jesse, can you remind us what the argument is here? Well, Matt, environmental groups and some traditional owners near Borroloola are arguing that the Mining and Industry Minister's decision in 2020 to reduce a thing called the Environmental Security Bonds by about $120 million for the MacArthur River Mine was invalid, and they're hoping to have that quashed. So security bonds are a type of environmental insurance fee paid by mining operators to the government in case of any sort of unexpected environmental harm. In uh, case something goes wrong. <laughs> that, that, that's absolutely the case. And uh, these groups are being represented uh, by the Environmental Defenders Office. Uh, David Morris from the EDO spoke to my colleague Liz Travaskis yesterday and did a good uh, job of explaining why exactly these security bonds are needed and why they need to be equal to the level of environmental risk. Here he is uh, sort of walking people through some of the complexities there. The law says you have a security bond to protect uh, the country in the Northern Territory, to protect the taxpayer um, and to protect people and communities like the one Jackson down in Borroloola um, from mines leaving a mess. And it's crucial in that context that the amount 
the government has is sufficient if the mining company walks away. So if you reduce a bond, if you reduce it by $119 million, you want to be fairly certain that it's now going to cost $119 million less than it was going to, to fix up that site. What the minister did was use a security calculation tool. um, And we say in doing so, she has unlawfully reduced that bond for a couple of reasons. Main one, uh, the monitoring contemplated is for between two and 10 years. And what we is undisputed is that monitoring and rehabilitation on that site needs to extend for between 100 and 1,000 years. The second thing is that the um, type of closure that's contemplated, this unplanned closure plan, talks about doing things which were inconsistent with what the Northern Territory Environment Protection Authority said had to happen on that site for it to be safe. This is all about creating a safe landscape post-mining. And if Glencore's not there to do it, the Northern Territory government and the taxpayers are going to have to. And if they don't have enough money to, and the Northern Territory government probably won't, the people who are left with that toxic legacy will be the communities that live in and around Borroloola. That's David Morris from the Environmental Defender's Office. Uh, So, Jesse Thompson, can you tell us what happened in court yesterday? Yeah, so Environmental Defender's Office lawyers are essentially arguing that the security bond wasn't calculated with reference to the likely level of environmental disturbance, which is what's required under the Act. And they've tabled uh, or submitted lots of documents related to the mine's management plans, where it's broadly acknowledged that this mine, because of how big it is, is going to require hundreds and hundreds of years of uh, monitoring after it closes. And that's something that even the mine's operator, uh, the Glencore-owned mine, Glencore owns mine has acknowledged. Now, they've also submitted to the court documents uh, essentially showing this tool that the government or the mining operator used to calculate the security bond. And in parts of those documents, they're only factoring in or costing post-closure monitoring for 10 years. So they're saying, you know, there's no way that this environmental security bond has been calculated with the correct reference to the likely level of environmental monitoring that will be required after this mine closes. Okay, so it's all back in court again today. What are you expecting? That's correct. The government will have its turn essentially today. It's expected to make uh, submissions responding to what we heard yesterday. One of the things that also came up yesterday and a key part of the environmentalist argument is that the MacArthur River mine when that management plan or its expansion was approved, didn't have a full closure plan, which is something that they argue is required by the Act. Uh, And it's expected that the government will today argue that actually the mine did have an unscheduled closure plan, so a closure plan for what will happen if they suddenly need to pack it up and leave the site. And it's expected that the government will today try to argue that that is all that was required under the Act and therefore it was meeting the requirements of its legislation. Okay, well, thank you for keeping us up to date, Jesse. I'll let you get back into the courtroom. Thanks, Matt. Can't wait. Hello, my name is Sarah. I'm a third-year student studying at Animal Science Faculty, Universitas Gajah Mada. Um, I'm now currently at the Northern Territory for the Indonesia Northern Territory Biosecurity Program. And now you're listening to The Country Hour. <laughs> there goes Jesse Thompson. He can't wait to get back into the Supreme Court. <laughs> I don't believe him. I don't believe him. Senate estimates have been on in Canberra this week and today in the hot seat taking questions from the Senators have been four of the Territory's Aboriginal Land Councils. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. Uh, The Land Councils, what sort of questions have they been copying? Yeah, Matt, so the Northern, the Central, the Tiwi and the Anandiliakwa Land Councils all appeared this morning. Uh, They're there because they are partly funded by government, so Mm -hmm. they've uh, got to ask some questions. Uh, And they were asked about a range of topics, pretty much everything from buffalo grass to unemployment to gas projects and and lots more. Uh, I didn't hear any buffalo come up, Matt, no. Uh, the newly independent Senator Lydia Thorpe, uh, she's taken an interest in the Northern Land Council's legal challenge to the land clearing permit for Avern Station mm-hmm. that we've heard about this week. Yes. Uh, the NLC's principal legal officer, Dominic Gomez, he explained the organisation's case to the Senator. Let's listen to what he said. The grounds of the challenge relate to the lack of consideration to sites that are in the area by the delegate of the Pastoral Land Board but also the fact that there wasn't consent there from traditional owners to the clearing. 
So did the NT government um, or the Pastoral Land Board notify native titles holders of the clearing permit? Uh, they did not, Senator. Um, and the NLC's position is that that's not an acceptable practice by the Pastoral Land Board. Uh, the NLC wants to see a review of what's happening there to ensure that native title holders provide consent before clearing activity occurs and that when we're relevant for, you know, activity that may be considered non-pastoral use activity, they obtain ILUAs before they undertake any, any activity. So the, uh, the pastoralist applied to the pastoral land board to do clearing, as we understand, for, for cotton plantations. The argument that the pastoralist has put, and this is sort of a consistent point of tension at the moment between the Northern Territory Government and the Northern Land Council, is that they maintain cotton uh, agriculture is a form of pastoral use. We reject that completely because we think if you're planting cotton, you're growing a new crop, that's not a pastoral activity. Because it's a non-pastoral use activity, you're required to get consent from and enter into an ILUA with native title holders, which is not what yes. they're doing at the moment, which is why we're taking them to court and why we're challenging the decision of the Pastoral Land Board. That is Dominic Gomez. He's a Principal Legal Officer with the Northern Land Council, answering questions there from uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe. And Ilua, he mentioned, is an Indigenous land use agreement, for those uh, not familiar. Uh, the Tewi Land Council, uh, it was also asked uh, uh, quite a few questions, um, especially about Santos's Barossa project. Uh, this is the gas field out to the north of the Tewi Islands that um, has been uh, temporarily shut down by uh, a federal court case um, regarding consultation issues with traditional owners there. Uh, the Tiwi Land, Land Council CEO, Robert Graham, he said uh, there's been quite some mixed opinions about the gas project on the islands. There are a small number of Tiwi who are passionately opposed to it, and I respect them, and the Tiwi Land Council does. There's an equally small number of people who are in favour of it. There's a significant amount in the middle who have either no view on it or who want us to organise them to get more um, information. There has been, um, several weeks ago, there were uh, three days of consultations on the island at each of the communities. Santos would like to do follow-ups within... They were community meetings. They would like to do follow-ups with the clans themselves. That's tentatively being talked about. It, it, I'm not sure when it'll happen. It'll happen... If it happens, we'll have to make sure the clans are sort of interested in talking to them. We'll have to get out and see them ourselves. Robert Graham, he is the CEO of the Tiwi Land Council, speaking there about how Santos has been back out on the Tiwi Islands. Uh, further consultations about its Barossa project. Thank you, Dan. Hi, I'm Jake Stringer. I'm the manager of Kidman Spring Station, and you're listening to The Country Hour. On the text line 0487 1057, John in Catherine says... Is there an opportunity for land councils and landowners to cull buffalo in areas where contract musterers can't access due to terrain and do it after the mustering season has finished? Could be a win for landowners, musterers and the environment, reckons John in Catherine. And Dion in Humpty Doo says, How about putting gamber grass eradication on the carbon credit scheme? Just on the topic of gunning down ferals to earn carbon credits, the idea is not new. Back in 2013, the federal government at the time knocked back a proposal to gun down feral camels in Central Australia for carbon credits. That never saw the light of day. Maybe Buffalo will be different. I don't know. I do know it's news time. See you back here in five. Hi, Cole Stanton, your local dirt doctor or soil doctor, carrying out some uh, erosion control works on Andrelia Station at this given moment. And guess what? You'll listen to the country hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. It has been closed for the last eight weeks. But the Tenamai Road is back open this afternoon. Big relief for a lot of people in that region, including the Newmont Gold Mine. Without the road access, we've been using our flights to fly food in. So bringing in three or four tonne of food, which gets us by day to day. But what this will allow us to do now is to really increase our, our food stocks on site up to two to four weeks. The Tenamai is back open for how long, though? We'll talk more about this soon. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. The Tenamai is back open. Beck, 
great news for everyone in that region. <laughs> but what about this weekend? Uh, what can you tell people? Yeah, in terms of the Tanami, um, well, let me let me start from the beginning with my story, shall I? Done. Um, Once upon a time. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so we're tracking this low-pressure system that's now pretty close to the coast in the southeast Gulf of Carpentaria. So that is expected to move to the southwest into the Barclay. Uh, so uh, we've already seen, uh, we can see on radar, there's a bit of rainfall over eastern parts of the Barclay now, but uh, we don't have any rain gauges in that area. So I can't tell you how much rain has fallen um, but yeah, basically expecting increasing rainfall starting in the east today um, and then spreading westwards across the weekend. So should start to see some um, some rainfall across the northern half of the Tanami or northern two-thirds of the Tanami district um, from Sunday onwards. Um, so southern parts... Uh, should stay fairly clear. So around Yunnamu, not expecting uh, much in the way of rainfall down there, but um, further up around Rabbit Flat, um, the granites, that kind of area, could see some rainfall there. Right, where the mine is. Mm. Mm. Are you willing to say how much rain could be caught up with this system as it moves from east to west? Uh, the highest falls are going to be in the Barclay. Um, so today, um, probably uh, lesser falls. It's more over in Queensland today. Um, from tomorrow, looking at probably about 20 to 60 millimetres over eastern Barclay okay. areas. Mm -hmm. And we could see some high falls as well, potentially getting up to 120 millimetres where that where that low is or, and to the south of that low. So um, over the the southeast Barkley, I'd say that the high rainfalls are more likely to be. Um, then that's expected to start moving east, uh, westwards, sorry, my other east. Um, so affecting the northern Barkley will be where the higher falls are. Um, so seeing 20 to 50 millimetres on Sunday, um, and then that extending further west into the Gregory District with some heavier falls there as well, potentially, on Monday. Um, in terms of the Tanami, you'd probably be looking at um, a little bit less than that, so maybe uh, 5 to 20 millimetres, potentially, over the northern parts. Yeah. Uh, just looking at... Uh the forecast for Curtin Springs Cattle Station, a top of 41 degrees today, 41 tomorrow, 40 on Sunday. What can you tell us about the fire weather conditions at the moment in Central Australia? Yeah, so um, as that low moves across um, and we've got a, a high-pressure system to the south as well, uh, we are getting some fresh winds developing um, so easterly winds across the southern parts of the territory um, from today we've actually seen Alice Springs um, increasing their winds uh, just in the last hour or so um, and has just nudged uh, or got close to extreme fire danger mm -hmm. um, okay. so uh, the next couple of days, uh, those winds could even pick up a fraction more. So um, with those hot temperatures and the fresh easterly winds, um, we could see some more extreme fire dangers through the southern districts over the weekend. Yeah, nasty. I see here for Alice tomorrow, winds potentially up to 45 kilometres an hour in the morning. Decent. Yeah, that's right. And probably um, extending through much of the afternoon as well. And finally, for fish shows, any tips? Uh, lighter winds uh, over coastal waters tomorrow at Darwin Harbour, uh, only getting up to about 10 to 15 knots in the westerlies. Um, stronger winds have been in the Gulf of Carpentaria, uh, where we have had up to 25 knots today, but expecting those to be decreasing over the weekend, getting back down to um, about 10 to 15 knots by Sunday. Okay, thanks for your time this afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Matt. Rebecca Patrick at the Weather Bureau. Speaking of fishing, make sure you wet a line and tune into the tinny this afternoon. Tales.
comes from the tinny. It was over a metre, the mackerel. It's come through the hat, went absolutely mental and gave me a black eye. Next minute, this bucket has come flying out of the water. And I was like, oh no, I've only got 40 pound line on. Subscribe to the podcast. Yes, I do a mean Stingray Luxor. You think you're the only one that makes a Stingray Luxor? I haven't heard of anyone else. There was a lot of fish in the 90s. And I also... really had to bleed this data out of you. You're being a little yeah, cagey on this yeah, one. Yeah, you're practising to be a politician. Well, catch it from 5.30 today on ABC Radio Darwin. It is 11 past one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Good news, the Tenamai Road has reopened after being closed for the last eight weeks. The road was closed in late December after some big, big rains. Now, this is something, of course, that happens every year, but still it's a big inconvenience to people who live in that region and businesses that operate in the Tenamai. NT Road Transport Association's Louise Bellato says it's a relief that the road has reopened, but that, of course, could change quickly. We understand that the uh, weather conditions out in the Tatamai district might change by the weekend, so that could mean that the road is closed again. But it has been eight weeks now that the uh, Tatamai road's been closed, so that's having a huge impact on businesses in uh, Alice Springs as well as the Newmont Mine, as well as um, the uh, local communities that uh, rely on uh, the Tanamai Road to get to and from uh, communities as well as into town. Could you tell me what condition is the road in at the moment? What does it look like? Well, I haven't been out there personally, but uh, I understand that there have been some sections that have been um, very badly damaged. The um, Department of Infrastructure Planning and Logistics have been um, working closely with industry and did do uh, or did have the um, contractor that's been engaged to uh, do the um, the sealing uh, exact contracting uh, and they did an opening grade but unfortunately they um, there was about another 100 mils of rain that went um, in the area that uh, it was really boggy and uh, so they've now been um, having trucks putting uh, additional materials on the really degraded sections of the unsealed um, road closest to the mine uh, in the hope that that will alleviate some of the problems and uh, that now that it's reopened, we won't be seeing um, you know too much carnage and uh, trucks bogged in the middle of the road. As you mentioned before, there is that risk of rain again this weekend or coming up this week. Uh, if that happens again, is it their potential to see the road closed again? Oh, rapidly. I think that they won't hesitate to close it quickly if um, to try and prevent any further damage. And uh, so the um, oversize over mass um, and, you know, equipment on low loaders, uh, they won't be able to access the road at the moment either. But uh, certainly, you know, flat tops with um, freight and general goods will be making their way out there. Um, but with the weight restrictions and only uh, double uh, road trains, it also increases the cost of the freight because you're not taking triple road trains at fully loaded capacity. So, you know, this is fantastic that it's been able to be opened, but uh, it certainly is a um, it's a different ball game than what normally happens on the Tanami Road with the, um, the the nature of the work task out to the mine. How much of an impact is that weight restriction making? Yes, so the weight limits and the um, only uh, doubles uh, will Im- impose a significant um, restriction even though it's opened. Um, and there are uh, uh, truckies that have actually been sitting uh, or the, their equipment has been sitting in Alice Springs uh, waiting for the road to open uh, for weeks now because we had uh, hoped uh, it would be opened at the end of January. Obviously, the extra rain meant that uh, that put a stop to it. But uh, and and I know that the um, all the crews, including uh, Dipple's work crews, have been really conscientious in um, doing what they can to try and get the road open as quickly as possible. You mentioned before that uh, you think this might have been the longest road closure of the Tanami Road. Yes. So in 2001, there was a a, a lot of rain in the region and. Uh, it had several closures, but the maximum at any time was about two weeks. And um, 
this has been eight weeks since the Tuesday um, before Christmas uh, continuously. So this is unprecedented. And, um, you know, as you'll see around Alice Springs, it's like a tropical oasis rather than a desert. Uh, yeah, so it's, it is very different to what, uh, you know, they're used to. Louise Bellardo from the NT Road Transport Association speaking there to Victoria Ellis about the Tanami Road reopening for now. It's been closed for eight weeks and during that time the Newmont Gold Mine has had to fly in its food and other supplies. The mine's general manager, Justin Demillion, says he's excited to see some trucks rolling again. We have a bunch of road trains sitting in Alice Springs ready to come to site. So the opening of the roads to unpermitted triple road trains at 80% is certainly going to go a long way to helping us. And as we know, the wet season's not over yet, so another two months of wet to come. So this is a good opportunity for us with the weather looking better and better to punch a bit of freight through down that road. So very excited about the opportunity. And it's just a matter of now balancing the road conditions and make sure that we maintain good conditions to that track going forwards. After eight weeks without having that road supply, what is going to be the first things that you bring in? What's coming in first is not super exciting. It's things like cement, um, ground support for the underground mine and explosives for us are the the three priorities at the stage and obviously more pumps in case we get some more rain. And there is the potential for more rain later this week um, and the road could close again if it does rain. How concerned are you for that? Not super concerned. we just got to make sure that we take every opportunity we can to push freight down that road when we can without damaging the track further and make sure that we are ready to, ready to go when the road is open. How much of a morale boost will this be for staff at the site? Definitely something the team on site has been waiting for for a long time and a lot of work's gone on during the wet season to fly freight in, but this will make our lives a lot easier, so super excited. Just how hard has it been without that road access? Without the road access, we've been using our flights to fly food in, so bringing in three or four tonne of food, which gets us by day to day. But what this will allow us to do now is to really increase our our food stocks on site up to two to four weeks so we can really build up our stocks again and get ready for the next rainfall event should it happen. What's the difference with flying the food in compared to getting it trucked in? Is it significantly more costly or um, significantly more difficult? The main challenge this year bringing food in without the roads is just the sheer volumes. On average, we use about 17 tonnes of food per week and we just can't fly that volume in. Before the wet season, we build up a lot of stocks and we've been dwindling those down. So the last, towards the end of the wet season, we've, we've organised a cargo plane and that cargo plane's been able to keep up, keep up with our food requirements. But yes, it's a lot more expensive than being able to truck food in. Full loads can't come on this road at the moment yet. How much will that impact only having 80% loads or not being able to carry that full amount? We generally work with our suppliers to bring full loads down the road and when there are restrictions on in place, we just have to modify the load. So what that means for us is we have to stage a lot of our trucks in Alice Springs and transfer some loads to other other trucks and things like diesel trucks and explosives. We just manage that with the suppliers before they leave their ports. It's been eight weeks since the road was closed, but how does that compare to other wet seasons? 2017 was one of the wetter seasons we had at Tanamine. That's shut the operation for about four months. So we learned a lot from that wet season. And since then, we've managed to get a gas supply to site. So managing power by gas supplies changed the way we operate at And then every year before the wet, we build up about eight weeks' worth of stocks So this season has been worse than the last few, but not quite as bad as the 2017 wet season that we had in terms of operations. Has any of this impacted the expansion of the mine? Oh, I'm glad you brought our expansion up. It's it's really tandemised growth strategy for the next 20 years. So we've been able to keep the work on our shaft going. So for those that don't know, we're building a 1.5 kilometre deep shaft at Tandemai and it's really going to support us with our long life and our low cost 
and our growth strategy. So through the wet, we've been able to keep working on our shaft and we, we continue to line our shaft. That is the general manager of the Newmont Mine, Justin Demillion, speaking to Victoria Ellis. We really appreciate Justin sharing his time. Yeah, and my name's Nick Ferrica from Road Trains of Australia and I've just unloaded here at the Barrymore Export Yard. When I'm cruising along, I always tune into the country hour. The live export shipping company Wellard has today released its half-yearly financial results and there's a lot of red arrows. I'm joined in the studio again by Dan Fitzgerald. Dan, bit of a challenging time for Wellard. Yeah, it was, Matt. Uh, Wellard has reported a five million US dollar loss for the first half, uh, for the half year ending on December 31. Uh, that's been put down to some pretty uh, tough conditions for the live export uh, supply chain. Um, of course, those biosecurity issues in Indonesia uh, causing both a fall-off in buying activity and a changed market dynamic towards smaller vessels in that market, according to Wellard. Of course, Wellard, most of its vessels, they're on the bigger end scale of things. Uh, fuel prices, uh, they also uh, caused a hit to the company's bottom line. They're the company's largest cost. And its statement to the ASX says normally Wellard passes on those fuel price fluctuations. However, with livestock export traders and importers suffering either losses or tight margins themselves, Wellard's ability to pass on increased prices was compromised. Mm, you mentioned that Wellard sort of has these large live export ships. One of them is having a bit of trouble? What's the latest on the Ocean Swagman? Yeah, so um, in the beginning of February, the Ocean Swagman experienced starboard engine failure after discharging cargo in China, and the extent and cost of those repairs, they are not fully known. Mm, a tough half year for Wellard. What's its outlook? Uh, well, yeah, it, it goes on to say that Catawax was to Indonesia and Vietnam. They'll, of course, be crucial to the utilisation of its ships, the Ocean Swagman and the Ocean Ute, uh, which both of which are currently unemployed and not expected to be fully utilised again until the middle of this year when, um, well, I'd expect Australian cattle volumes to increase again. OK, thank you for keeping us up to date, Dan. Get your garden ready for autumn with the March issue of ABC Gardening Australia magazine. Select some gorgeous ground covers, grow herbs for the cooler months and choose your favourite bulbs for spring colour. Learn about gardening on a steep slope, the wonders of compost and the benefits of chook tractors. And read about the amazing revegetation of a tropical Queensland island. Gardening Australia magazine, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au. NAPCO, Consolidated Pastoral Company, Georgina Pastoral. These are some of the biggest names in Australia's cattle industry. And now they're throwing their support and their money behind a bid to see agricultural training return to outback Queensland. The Country Hour's Madeline McCosker has the story. Nine major corporations and businesses have committed to fund and reinstate agricultural training at the former Longreach Pastoral College as part of a consortium bid for the state-owned facility, which closed in 2019. AAM Investment Group announced its intention to submit a tender for the training hub last week, but only revealed details of the parties involved at a community meeting in Longreach last night. It includes Australian Country Choice, Cleveland Ag, CPC, the Kerr family, Georgina Pastoral, McDonald Holdings, Morton Co and NAPCO. AAM's Managing Director Gary Edwards told the meeting the bid recognises the shared need for training and education in the industry. This is the point where everyone gets to put up or shut up. So if you want to start something, uh, you go to people that are like-minded and actually want to do something. We are saying that we are prepared to put our money where our mouth is and seek to secure this asset because it's a crying shame to see something sit there and do nothing. He says it will take years of work to bring the facility up to scratch and estimates at least $5 million would be spent on just the first round of refurbishments. Because we've got a lot of years' work out there, right? There's going to be a fair few people employed just refurbishing this place. On the first round of refurbishments, 
we're expecting that that's a minimum on our first round of at least $5 million. Now, that's not the whole thing. That's just the first step. That's just to get it back up and going. And that's what we're committing to fund. So not just the acquisition, not just the refurbishment, but then the operations for that period of time. We're going to do this essentially around a minimum five-year or and potentially up to a full ten years' worth of funding. We're kind of hoping that at that point in time we can make the thing sustainable. While the consortium is funding the refurbishment, Mr Edwards says professional service providers will be hired to train and educate workers at the college who will also have access to local AAM facilities and properties. We will fund the redevelopment. We will fund the seeding of this. But we're going to look to partner with at least one, maybe more, training organisation to deliver other services out there. Because all of those companies out there are not in the education business. We're in the need of education, but we're not in the education business. Simply what we're doing is pooling our resources to try and secure, redevelop and reopen. While agricultural training and education is a key element of the tender bid, Mr Edwards assured the meeting the facility and the land would be accessible to a diverse range of industries, businesses and organisations. We are openly welcoming any and all other people. This is not an exclusive club. We're intentionally doing this to be inclusive because that's the best way to keep this as a community or industry asset. Matabara Grazia Boyd-Webb says seeing such a large commitment from some of Australia's biggest pastoral families and companies was reassuring. That just puts a bit of muscle behind the argument. Um, but I think what's really encouraging is that it gets it back to industry or gets it back into a, a medium there where people um, actually get what they're trying to achieve. Um, I think, you know, yeah, the college, you know, people say the college failed. Well, the college was very successful for the thir- first 30 years and it was just when it was fiddled with that it didn't, that it, it began to fail and did fail eventually. And if you, if you keep neglecting something for long enough, of course it will fail. I think it will be very successful if we actually embrace it and, and give it the um, direction that, it's, you know, that it needs. That is Boyd Webb from Mutterborough in Queensland and in that story by Madeline McCosker. And you can read more about this up online right now if you search for ABC Rural. And while you're there, why not check out a bevy of good stories from around the nation, including a story today about a plant-based meat manufacturer that is getting ready to close its $20 million factory at Wodonga there on the New South Wales-Victorian border. It was only opened a handful of years ago, and now this company getting ready to close it. Hey, just quickly to everyone in the mango industry, there will be special workshops held in the next week or so, and you're all invited along to help develop a strategic plan for the mango industry. So the Darwin Growers Workshop, it's on the 20th of February, Starts at 9 o'clock at the NT Farmer's Office in Coolinga. And the Catherine Growers Workshop, it's on the 24th of February. Kicks off at 10 o'clock at the Catherine Town Council. So to everyone in the mango industry, get involved. Help develop a strategic plan for the mango industry. If you have any questions or want to sign up, get in touch with NT Farmers. That's all we've got time for on today's Country Hour. It's been a very busy, busy week. If you've missed any of our stories, you can find them up on the website if you search for NT Country Hour. A reminder, landline on TV this Sunday at 12.30. And if you miss it, you can catch it via ABC iView. Keep it rural.